Hello and welcome to the Ireland on the Fly podcast, covering the people and places about fly fishing in Ireland. It's still been a slow start to the salmon season for anglers, and despite the first fish caught in Koran at the end of January by local angler Kevin O'Shea, I thought this week would be a good time to step back a bit and hear about the story of Peter Mantle, who despite so many battles, obstacles and difficulties in his early years, built Delphi up into being one of the foremost salmon fisheries in Ireland. Peter of course went on to found Delphi Bahamas, but it was for his initial Delphi success that I met up with him in his house a few years ago in Connemara. It was the end of the season and Peter had come over with his family for a few days or an or. And despite having worked in the Bahamas in recent years and moved back to the UK, it was obvious he still loved Delphi and Connemara, holding a special place in his heart. Peter is a natural raconteur and one can easily see why people invested in his Delphi dreams and also why the shared dinner table in the house became so legendary. You'll have to excuse my audio levels which are low and in the background, but this is all about Peter Mantle, his story, in his own words, of becoming the Irish Delphi Oracle. I mean, when we arrived on the scene, Ireland was so incredibly depressed. Well, mid-80s, I mean, you, you could have bought anything in Ireland for half nothing. We, we paid for the whole Delphi estate 253,000 Irish pounds. And, you know, our humble two-bedroom flat in London was almost worth that at the time. It was crazy. I'd been on a fishing holiday with a pal from London. I was living in America at the time. And we met up in Ireland. We went fishing down on the Blackwater. Actually, um, just below Ballyhooley. I don't know whether you know it down there. And we were in the pub by the bridge at lunchtime and got chatting to the barmaid. And she said, you know, it's for sale. I said, What? She said, yeah, it's only 90,000, she said. And that was 90,000 Irish pounds, which at the time was about 70,000 sterling. And Robin, my mate, his mum had just died and he'd just inherited 60,000 quid or something. And he said, Jesus, we should buy it. But I had to go back to the States. But all we could find out was the guy who owned it was called Hirsch. And he lived in Toronto. So I spent an eternity in Washington, D.C., trying to track down this man, Hirsch, and and eventually got him, and we agreed to meet next time he was in London. And over lunch, we agreed to buy it. And what it consisted of is a lovely Victorian house, the old castle, and three miles of pretty good fishing on the Blackwater for nothing, you know, really for nothing. The equivalent in Scotland would have been ten times the amount. And um, the bugger changed his mind. And he pulled out and saying they decided it wasn't a major cost centre for the family and that they had decided to keep it. But by this stage, our blood was up. And the idea of having a bit of fishing, I think neither Robin nor myself imagined that it would take us over. But the idea of being able to go to Ireland and have your own bit of fishing and look after it and have friends and whatever really appealed. So I started looking around for other places and wrote to lots of different people. And then somebody called John Hamilton at Jackson Stops um, sent me three sets of particulars, one of which was for Delphi. So we leapt on planes and came over to have a look at these three. One was... um, for Moyle Lodge down on the Costello system in Connemara. One was um, the house near Loch Mask that belonged to Robert Shaw. What's it called? Which was more about fishing on mask than anywhere else. And one was Delphi. And we came to Delphi 
on one of those very rare magical summer's days. And the lodge is pretty derelict, um, but we sat on an old bench in front of the lodge um, saying, you know, wow, what an amazing place. Who would abandon it and let it be in such awful shape as this? And there was a guy in a blue boat out on the lake on Finlock in front of the lodge who every three minutes or so seemed to be catching a fish. And we thought, Christ, you know, maybe it's good. And um, we'd never heard of it. And, you know, the more we asked around, the more we heard that it was one of the greatest sea trout fisheries in Ireland. And, and we went to meet the Marquis, um, Jeremy Altamont, who was trying to sell it. And he had wanted... I think it was somewhere 350, 400 grand for it. And he had no interest in fishing. And to him, Delphi was just a bit of a liability and one of his many, many, many land holdings. So we had some very tricky negotiations with him, which were quite bizarre because in the middle of it all, we were poles apart on price. And he said, I think we need a break here. And we were in the library of Westport House having this meeting. And um, he said, look, I'll show you around the house. So we went off, and, and Westport House is actually filled with fantastic artwork. There's a massive collection of James Arthur O'Connor, um, you know, early 19th century paintings, including several of Delphi. And, um, but he wasn't interested in any of that. What he wanted to show us was the pink rabbit suit that he dressed up in to bring in tourists. This was in the early days of trying to generate tourism uh, to a Westport house in the estate. And we thought he was balmy. And we kind of looked at each other and semi-winked and decided we'd go back in and play hardball. And we did. And he collapsed on price. He came down, we agreed 250 grand. And he then wanted another 3,000 for all the boats, engines, and sticks of furniture that were left in the lodge. And we say, oh, there they are now, oh, 3,000. Um, but we agreed. We, we could see that he, it was a matter of principle for him. So we paid an extra three grand and got it. But having got it, we were unbelievably naive, and, and it was more or less a whim. We hadn't really thought through how we were going to do it, how we were going to make it work. Mm -hmm. Uh, the building was in terrible shape, um, and it, it was only a gradual realization that um, you know this was going to cost a huge amount of money to keep going, and that we had to find some way of um, of paying for it on an ongoing basis. So we put together a gang of pals cousins, relatives, anybody we knew who liked fishing and effectively built a kind of mini syndicate of shareholders um, including one or two that didn't even fish um, and quite an eclectic um, group we had, we had a, um, um, a British army general which I kept very quiet about we had a Tory MP's family trust we had um, all my fishing mates, um, my pal Robin, who, who's an architect, but he, he had a little sort of building development firm in London called Egg Builders, which was an anagram of idle buggers. And he and his mate both came in. Um, we had a couple of academics. We had all sorts, a really diverse group of people. 
And that was great. And the expectation was that they, if they liked fishing, would be able to come and stay pretty much wherever they liked. But we needed to raise more money for them to have somewhere to stay. And the first thing uh, we decided to do was to restore the cottages opposite Delphi Lodge. We never really dreamt that we would be able to restore the lodge itself. So Robin, set about, being an architect, set about doing a little scheme for the cottages. And then I was still doing a bit of journalism, and I was doing a piece on the evils of timeshare, which at the time was the subject of really nasty, heavy-pressure, dodgy sales things, um, mostly for apartments in Spain. But um, as part of researching that story, I'd been up in Scotland talking to some of the posh land agents about how timeshare was working on salmon rivers. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, wow, you know, that could work at Delphi. Um, so I went to see this guy at Savills, a, a lovely man called Roddy Daniels Willis. And um, I said, Roddy, we've got this place in Ireland and we're struggling to think what to do with it and trying to find a way of financing it. Um, would you come over and have a look? And he said, well, Peter, Ireland, I don't think so. And sea trout, we're not really into sea trout fishing. And, and I gather it's mostly lake fishing. He said, we're not really into that at all. He said, I don't think it'll work. I said, well, come and see it. So we paid for him to come over and took him down the pub and took him fishing. And, and he fell totally in love with the idea of the Delphi Valley and thought it was great. And... Um, so they agreed to put the Savile's name to our plan, which kind of gave it a brand of respectability, other than just being a bunch of uh, uh, yahoos. And um, we launched an incredibly inexpensive um, timeshare syndicate um, where you would buy in for 30 years. You paid on average, I think it was about 8000 and you got your cottage and fishing for two rods, um, you know, every year and the same week and for thirty years, and um, it sold like hotcakes. And nobody had ever done anything like it in Ireland before. Um, and it just happened to get lots of publicity. The Irish Times liked it. The Financial Times in Britain did a nice thing on it. And before we knew where we were, people were flocking to see it, and. Um, really liked it and it's very hard to understand how anybody could not like it um and so we we got that away and we then had enough money to start thinking about restoring the lodge itself um as well as all the fishing facilities new boats new everything cottages everything and no sooner had we finished restoring the lodge than the sea truck collapsed and you know, collapsed uh, by, by, by August 1989. We finished, I think we opened the lodge for business in June 88, having got married here that previous week. Sea trout fishing was still pretty good in 86 and 87, but 87 wasn't such a good year, and we were a little bit nervous. 88 was terrible, and 89 was a catastrophe. And, of course, what we didn't know at the time when we bought Delphi was that was exactly the same time that the salmon farm opened uh, in Kittery Harbour. 
and nor did we realize how you know, deleterious that would be. So um, here we were now in a fishing lodge with no fish, um, um, a pub with no beer, effectively. And what were we going to do? And did we want to become just a, a, a tiny hotel that probably wouldn't have been economic anyway? Did we want to cut our losses and bugger off? But before that, we had had another crisis, which was the discovery of gold in the hills at the top of the valley. Um, allegedly Europe's richest uh, find of gold. And um, although the publicity surrounding that had actually done us a power of good in terms of putting us on the map, and we were quite vocal in opposing the idea of an open pit mine at the top of the valley, um, it, had, it had freaked out some of our shareholders. And so my dad, who I thought was unbelievably honourable, said... Um, Peter, you're in trouble here, uh, and if some of your punters um, want to get out, he said, I'll, I'll lend you the money to get them out. He said, the last thing I want is you being accused of having sold you know, a pup to a load of people, some of whom he knew and some of whom he was related to. So he stepped in, and thank God he did. And so those who stayed with us, and some did, were all hardcore fishing nuts. And... So now suddenly the gold issue's gone away, but the sea trout issue has come on and, and everything's collapsed. So what did we do? And we asked around, picked brains left, right and centre, and the only thing we could think of doing was to try and enhance the salmon run. But Delphi's a tiny catchment area, and it was in robust health. It was already producing probably the maximum number of salmon smolts that it could do anyway. So we had to find a way of short-circuiting that and, um, you know, boosting the capability of, uh, of outputting baby salmon. So we found a guy, Dr. David Piggins, at the Salmon Research Trust up at Burrashul, who's sadly now dead, who took us under his wing, and he had pioneered salmon ranching at Burrashul back in the 60s. And... Um, had had phenomenal success with his programs, which were entirely scientifically oriented, not commercial. But he liked the idea of helping us, and so we, we somehow managed to borrow about 100 grand off the bank, who fortunately didn't really understand our business. And um, syndicate members divvied up a bit, um, and we built this hatchery, and then sat back and prayed. And some of the scientists have said it won't work. Some of them said it will work a little bit. And one or two said, well, you know, you could be surprised. You might, get a, you might get a lot of fish. And nothing happened the following year. No salmon came back. Um, one, I think we got one in 1991. 1992, we got maybe about 40 or 50, which was beginning to be interesting. And 1993 there were thousands of salmon back. And Killary Harbour was jam-packed with salmon. Everywhere you looked, there were salmon leaping. But there was a drought, and they couldn't get into the river. And the netsmen took the lot. They took 5,500 salmon out of Killary Harbour. <laughs> and I was fit to slash my wrists. Um, 
They were they, uh, something like two out of three uh, fish were ours um, because every fish we released we tagged and fin clipped. So we were in the in really invidious position, not only of not having them come back into the river uh, because they were netted, but having to go down to the netsman to buy them back from the netsman um, in order to see what tag information was in, the, in their noses. And it was then that we hit upon the idea of selling smoked salmon at the front door of the lodge just to get rid of these fish that we got the tags back from. Anyway, so the good news was, although it was shattering that we had reinvigorated this almost moribund um, draft netting industry in, in Killary Harbour, that nonetheless was, we realised, um, the, the real love and sport of virtually every able-bodied man in the area. They all were involved in one of the draft netting crews, and it was a tradition going back, you know, hundreds of years. And so I couldn't find it in myself to uh, campaign against draft netting. But obviously what we wanted was some control over the amount of fish that they could take if there was, as there was that year, an extreme drought situation because they weren't just catching our fish they were taking all the wild fish too and all the eris fish and but the good news was that the fish were coming back and the hatchery was producing these extraordinary numbers of fish that must have been an incredible experience it was like, unreal like, uh, you must have been watching them the river the lake yeah 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 there's a spot at the bottom of the river, on the very bottom of the meadow pool, which is the first resting point in fresh water. The fish come in up a fairly rough passage, and then they rest above the lip of a pool, a bit like out there. And you can see from a high bank into the pool. And when we started seeing large numbers of them coming in in 1994, um, it was so exciting. It was so unbelievably exciting. And... Um, and 1995, I think, was another drought year. But then it was okay in 96. It was brilliant for angling in 1997. And in 1998, we caught over a 1,000 salmon on the rod. And um, that was so far in excess of our initial expectations. Delphi used to average, before the hatchery, around about 100 salmon a year. And our aim with the hatchery was to make it perhaps 200 salmon, if we were lucky, on average. And we thought with 200 salmon, we would just about be credible as a fishing lodge. And so that was the survival plan. And it was worth the 100 grand gamble on the hatchery. You know, this is probably one of the last unspoilt valleys in Ireland. It's only 19 square miles of a catchment. It's in pristine shape, apart from a little bit of forestry, on one of the spawning streams and occasional overgrazing by sheep. It's it's as it ever was, and it's still pumping out thousands of, of you know salmon and sea trout smolts. But we can't do anything about what's done in the estuary. So we were being knackered, despite being privileged to be so unspoiled. And um like when you bought Delphi, was it did you were you gonna move over here No, 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 not at all. I can't tell you how naive we were. I mean, unbelievably stupid, really, when I look back on it. And 
Yeah, we just figured we'd flit over whenever we wanted and go fishing. And it was so stupid, so badly thought through. Um, and I was still in the States. And um, I was a, a journalist, yeah, um, financial journalist. But um, it soon became obvious that somebody had to be here to manage it politically as much as anything else we because of my accent i've always been a little bit kind of worried about exactly and and when we had first arrived we had put ourselves about a lot we'd been see everybody in the valley drunk everybody's pochine and tried to explain that we were young stupid but all we wanted was to try and put things back to how they had used to be and um We'd even been to see the parish priest who, who mistook my philofax for a breviary, which is a great start. Um, but, and then we got married here in the village. And I'm, because I, my mum's Irish, uh, I was brought up Catholic. And I semi-cynically played that a bit, that card a little bit. But nonetheless, for all practical purposes, I was a Brit and, and acutely aware of the need to tread carefully. And then we were approached by the, the AFRI charity crowd who were starting their series of famine marches to commemorate the Dulock tragedy, about which I knew nothing, incidentally. Um, and they asked if they could meet with 3,000 walkers on the lawn of Delphi Lodge to commemorate the horrid incidents at Delphi and I thought what are it incidents at Delphi and and I said well I'm not, not I'm okay-ish when do you want to do this and they said well we wanted it on June the 18th oh shit I thought that is the day we're getting married at Delphi and well having our reception at Delphi and I didn't want to be the one that turned away the people from Delphi Lodge, which is exactly what is supposed to have happened in 1842. Or um, so I had to be really um, on my toes and ship in some Irish writers, in fact, from Tipperary and Cork, to help kind of negotiate our way through this and... Um, and explain, bloody bloody blah, blah, that we weren't not wanting them, but it wasn't a great time to have it. And they said, well, we, you know, we're committed to doing it then. And I said, well, I'm committed to getting married. So it was really difficult. And, and in those early years, the canoeing row, the, the, the famine walk, the gold mining um, row, uh, which had the potential to wipe us out um, if it had ever happened, and then the salmon farming route. We just seemed to be in constant conflict with somebody and potentially rather bitter conflict. How were you, how were you managing this in the States? Well, I wasn't. But, but by 87, I realised that um, somebody was going to have to come over here and pretty much be here full time. And Robin, my pal, who's my sort of partner in it, said, well, he couldn't do that. And I thought, right, I'm not really enjoying life in Washington very much. So I quit and I came over and resigned from the outfit I was with in London. And Lafferty Publication, an Irish guy actually from Balahadreen in County Roscommon, he, 
He was the banking correspondent of the FT, the youngest ever banking correspondent, a brilliant man who had forecast um, the global financial services revolution, yonks before anybody else had seen it coming, before Big Bang, everything. And he'd broken away and set up his own, well, he and I set up a, a mini publishing company. And I was like the straight man to his genius. And he had 90% and I think I had 10% or something like that, which is fair enough. It was called Lafty Publications. And we were writing about the conglomeration of financial services for the industry, for not, a, not, not for the consumer. So, you know, we might be trying to analyse Citibank's worldwide strategy. Uh, not a topic that is going to sell millions, but a topic that would interest all of Citibank's competitors and who would be willing to pay very, very high prices to get hold of that information. So uh, he was brilliant in the way he, he, he played people's egos to get them to spill the beans on, you know, why American Express was going to be the most successful company in the world and get the CEO to come and speak at one of our conferences or write a book for us. Or, and all their rivals and competitors would feed off this. So we, we built this very successful little company between 1980 and 1986, seven, that we won the Queen's Award for exports. We got all kinds of... And we had a network of stringers around the world, which at one stage was... Um, almost as big as the FTs, actually. Although they were all part-time, not full-time. Um, and had a lot of fun. But I was a total, total, total workaholic. And I wasn't... I was probably playing um, a bit too hard, too, in, in terms of, you know, after a really long day at the office, we'd go and drink a half bottle of whiskey. Or, and I wasn't living a very healthy lifestyle. And I was on assignment in Italy and I came off a plane from Milan in Rome and I went to a little cafe to have a drink and I had a kind of episode, almost like a, not a fit, but I lost the use of my hands and legs. And my mum's a doctor, so I, I finally managed to call her and... Um, she sort of sounds like you're having some sort of hypoglycemic event, uh, you know, drink lots of Coca-Cola. And that didn't work. So I called, got the hotel to call a doctor. And this doctor took one look at me and fiddled around a bit. And he said, you have three problems, he said. You smoke too much, you drink too much, and you work too much. He said, you must give up one of these things. One of them, I thought, right, I love smoking, I love drinking. I do need to cut back on my work later a bit. So that sort of all coincided with a realisation that um, that Ireland needed somebody full-time. But also at that time, I'd been approached to go and join another publishing firm in, in Manhattan. And Jane, who was then my girlfriend, was hugely keen on the idea of um, moving to New York. So to turn around and tell her, actually, no, it's not going to be Manhattan. It's going to be this godforsaken valley in the middle of nowhere in the west of Ireland. It was really more than she could bear. And the exact, well, the, the deal we did was that, that she came over in 87 from England. I came back from America. And um, 
we agreed we'd try it for a year. And if it worked, we'd get married. And if it didn't work, then we'd go our separate ways or we might even both quit Delphi. And thank God, at, at the end of that year, during which I had plied her with puppies and donkeys and horses and everything to try and get her into country life. And she loved it. And so we agreed to get married and we got married. And, you know, as I said, and, and had a slightly difficult time trying to get the famine walkers away. But... Um, Yeah. Yeah, we. Of course, no, of course, we thought about it, um, but again, you know, we were young, very enthusiastic. Um, when you are young, I couldn't have done it now, but well, you, you, you've got a sort of sense of um, invincibility, and you don't want to let the buggers get you down, and. It it offended me that we were being jeopardised by what I saw as being crappy new industries that were good for nothing. And I still think salmon farming is one of the greatest e eco uh, and economic disasters ever. Um, makes no sense, the industry, whatsoever. It's a hugely efficient waste of uh, resources and is massively destructive of the natural, wild, self-sustaining environment. But that's, I could write a book about that. And in fact, I am writing a book about it, but that's another day's work. Um, and, and so you don't want to be beaten by it. And we did think we might lose because we thought the bank might pull the plug. We, um, um, there were moments between 1990 and 1992 when we teetered on the brink of insolvency, you know. No, fortunately not, um, um, because we got rid of any of the flaky ones during the gold mining crisis. Um, and by 1993, when all these salmon started appearing, albeit we didn't catch many, um, people were beginning to think, ooh, Delphi salmon. So we started thinking, well, if they're thinking Delphi salmon, why don't we do some more syndicate weeks and um, syndicate some salmon weeks earlier on in the year because up until that moment we'd only syndicated sea trout weeks which were July, August and September. So we launched another syndicate scheme to raise a bit more dosh to improve the hatchery, extend the lodge, restore another couple of cottages on the estate and to try and make it into a kind of viable business that could actually wash its face and stood some chance of giving us um, an income you know, sufficient to educate the kids and, and, and whatever. I mean, I hasten to add, I, I genuinely am not terribly interested in money, but, but when you've got kids and a mortgage and all that sort of stuff, obviously you have to start thinking a little bit more responsibly. And I could see that Delphi needed to be put on a much more stable footing if it was to be our sole occupation. We, I don't think we even begun to relax until at least 10 years had passed, so probably the mid to late 90s. Um, and were you living in the lodge? Yeah, we lived at the back of the lodge. Um, we had our own little flat, but it was also the staff restroom, and they all came in to have their lunch. It wasn't ideal. 
And then in 1990, we'd had our first child, Millie, that one. Um, and then 1993, our second daughter. And it was quite complicated to be living in the lodge with these young kids who were more interested in skateboarding down the corridors while we were trying to flog peace and tranquility in you know, this lost valley. Um, so that became a bit of an issue. And it was then that we started looking at doing up a house up the road. And Jane also thought that it would make me less of a workaholic, that I would you know, be able to get away from the lodge, that I wouldn't be constantly on call down there. And that didn't really work. but um, Because I loved it. You know, I absolutely loved it. But I also, by certainly by the early noughties, um, I was getting pretty shagged out. And it was very full on. Um, you know, first thing in the morning till the last man standing and drinking uh, at night. Um very long days, seven days a week, but then we would have a chance to rest a bit in the winter. Um, and the promise I'd made her, which I much regretted, was that I would take them all on a sunny holiday at least once every year. And, of course, to find sun in the middle of winter is quite an expensive endeavour. So we ended up going to all sorts of places to fulfil my promise, which we really couldn't afford because... I mean, I, ha I had taken a 92% pay cut to come and live here. Uh, I, it was a ridiculous amount of money that I was earning in America. And, and when I first came here, we paid ourselves 8,000 um, 8, quid, Irish pounds a year. That was my pay. You've been listening to Peter Mantle telling his remarkable and candid story of how he bought and built the Connemara Delphi fishery into the legend that it has now become. We'll hear more from Peter later in the podcast series in a few weeks' time. But in the meantime, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And also check us out on irelandonthefly.com. I'll be back next week with another episode on the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland. So do join me then. <laughs>